0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
2: No Saudi prince in power, no king or crown prince has ever said this to us before. No crown prince or king has ever said to an American official, we need to reign in Islam in Saudi Arabia. No one has ever said this to an American official before and we went back to Washington stunned that at last we have a prince who's now talking in these terms.
3: Sami Hamdi, it's a pleasure to have you with The Thinking Muslim. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Wa, alaykum alaykum wa rahmatullah. Thank you for having me, Muhammad. Jazakallah. Well, look, there's so much to discuss today. I've called you in to discuss Saudi Arabia from the war in Yemen uh, to raves in Riyadh. I want to understand... Saudi Arabia as a regional power. Many see the country as a staunch ally, if not a stooge of the United States. Yet others hail it as a, uh, an independent country that's, path that's forging an independent path. From moonsighting to Hajj, the country remains at the centre of Muslim religious life. Yet we can't but observe with horror the activities of its crown prince, the de facto leader Mohammed bin Salman, So how do we analyse the country and its future? Now, many Muslims have been appalled by the soft secularisation of the country. We have seen the arrests of prominent sheikhs, we've seen the control of religious authorities and the grotesque spectacle of raves in Riyadh. Yet I note this Fahisha has been embraced by many of the country's youth. How do we interpret this liberalisation? Thank you for having me. I think, first and foremost, To
2: understand what's going on in Saudi Arabia, I think it's important to stress that politics is a science of human relations. The reason why I mention that is because the same way that the human being feels fear, happiness, sadness, despair and the like, it's the same way that states feel. The reason why I mention that is to state that a lot of the policies that have taken place in Saudi Arabia are not part of a strategy that's been organized in the long term, but a lot of it has actually been reactionary as opposed to anything else. And I think that one of the things that's important to note when it comes to the policies that Bin Salman has been implementing is this idea that he sees that Saudi Arabia is under significant pressure. The economy badly needs to be diversified. The foreign policy badly needs to tackle the issues of an Iranian pincer, Iraq militias to the north, Iran to the east, and Houthis in the Yemen to the south. The relationship with the U.S., which has become increasingly aggressive, particularly during the Trump administration, in demanding that oil policy be set in a particular way that is counterproductive ...to Saudi Arabia's market. Domestically, bin Salman had to wrestle with very powerful princes. Mohammed bin Nayef, who was once crown prince... ...who received a prize from the CIA in 2017... ...the clearest indication from Washington... ...as to who they wanted to be crown prince. He had to face off against Mitab bin Abdullah... ...the son of the former King Abdullah... ...who was head of the National Guard... ...who at one point managed to change the governors of Riyadh and Mecca... ...to his full brothers... ...in order to try to orchestrate the downfall... ...of bin Salman's father as crown prince... In other words, Bin Salman, since 2014, 2013, has had to wrestle with very, very difficult situation that anybody in his position would have to take very drastic measures. I'm not saying this necessarily to justify what Bin Salman is doing, but certainly to lend an appreciation that Bin Salman has found himself in a position where he has to do something radical. And that radical thing has been about this idea of Vision 2030. One of the aspects of trying to get the Saudi population to put up with these reforms, particularly with regards to economic reforms, has been the introduction of these entertainment facilities. Imagine you are Mohammed bin Salman, and you know that you are going to have to reel back the patronage. You're going to have to reel back the benefits you gave to Saudis on housing. Reel back the benefits you gave them on subsidies with oil. Reel back the subsidies that you gave them on their wages. You will have to put Saudis into work that they historically have been disinclined towards and they preferred the Indians and Bengalis and Pakistanis and these other people to do it as well. Bin Salman needs a trade-off for that because he believes that in a climate which has seen the Arab Spring, there is a risk of the people going into a backlash. So part of this entertainment policy is within this this idea itself. But that's not the whole picture. It's also worth noting that Bin Salman is the product of what I call the MBC generation. For those who don't know MBC... It was a channel that was based in Dubai that always used to deny that it was backed by Saudi, but it had all the licenses for the Hollywood films, and it would broadcast them 24 hours to the Arab population. A lot of the Mashaikh in Saudi Arabia in the 2000s would complain to the king and say, this is going to ruin our future generation. This is going to ruin what's going to happen to our future generation. And the king would reply and say, we have nothing to do with NBC. Mm Until in 2008 or 2009, I could be wrong, but certainly the late 2000s, Walid bin Ibrahim, the chairman of MBC, made a statement that shocked everybody and actually gave an indication as to which trajectory Salman would go if he became king. Waleed bin Ibrahim told the forum in the UAE that Salman bin Saud, you can find it on YouTube, the video is still there, He said, word for word, Salman bin Abdulaziz Al Saud has been one of our greatest patrons. And I am in regular contact with him almost daily to decide the schedule program of what should be broadcast on MBC. Salman at a time in which he was hosting all the conservative scholars or the like. But the reason why I say that is that MBS is the product of a generation that grew up on MBC, that grew up believing that the Western world is the model that we should be following and implementing to achieve economic prosperity and that we are being held back by the religion, by Islam. And the proof of that is that as soon as Bin Salman became crown prince in 2017, the first international tour he does is to the U.S., he does a lavish, lavish tour in 2018. He meets Oprah Winfrey. He meets Mark Zuckerberg. He meets Donald Trump. He meets anybody who's, everybody who's anybody in the US. And the message is clear. He doesn't go to Beijing. He doesn't go to Moscow. He doesn't go to the European capitals. If he visits them, he doesn't do a tour like he did in the US. But the message is clear. My vision 2030 is to make Saudi Arabia look like you, to look American with Western help, Western models, Western investment, Western technology, Western ideas to implement within Saudi Arabia itself. And this is why we see that in 2018-2019, he begins to invite Nicki Minaj, who turns him down. Then he invites Mariah Carey. Then he does a giant rave in the desert, but he does it in Jeddah, which is known as the gates of Mecca. And suddenly the Saudis are seeing this change. It's not necessary that Saudis approve of it, but more that they cannot believe that it's happening in their country. And one of the things that's quite fascinating is this. People often say that there's a suggestion that the Saudis are happy with what's happening. But I think it's far more nuanced than that. The social contract that bin Salman is establishing in Saudi Arabia is a simple one. I will give you bikini beaches. I will give you giant raves. I will give you entertainment, nightclubs. I'll let you do all of these entertainment activities that you've seen on NBC. In exchange, you will be apolitical. You won't ask me for civil engagement. You won't ask me for civil participation. You won't ask me for political participation. The Saudis are in a situation whereby they are contemplating whether that's a viable trade-off. Because one of the things that's quite fascinating is, after people started exploring the idea of a social contract, there is a journalist from The Economist who actually went to Saudi. And every person she interviewed said that they're not sure what to make of these entertainment policies because they know friends who are now being imprisoned and arrested for tweets despite having no history of activism. People being imprisoned for liking a tweet, even though they have no history of activism, suggesting that the reality of the price that they're paying for these giant raves is hitting too close to home. And the second point that's worth noting is this. In a society in which you are imprisoned for a tweet or removed from your job for a tweet, for example, Sheikh uh, Salah al-Mghamsi, I know he's under huge controversy at this moment in time, but before he became a very controversial figure with his statements on Umar ibn Abdulaziz and the like in recent times, Sheikh Al-Mughamsi put a tweet during COVID times in which he said, and you can find it, it's still available, I think actually you can find some articles that screenshotted it. Sheikh Al-Mughamsi said that Corona is a punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we should address it by doing the following. We should make plenty of istighfar, ask Allah to forgive us. We should give plenty of charity to those who need it and we should pardon where possible those who have wronged themselves and those who have been put in prison. Everybody interpreted it as, please stop imprisoning people. He was removed from his post from Mr. Quba. The tweet didn't seem that bad. Abdul Aziz al for example, put out a tweet in which he said that the IPO sale of Aramco will not satisfy the Americans. Mm-hmm. We should not allow them to have the greatest stake in Aramco. I think Americans currently have about 5% or maybe less than that. We should not ha- let them have more. Mm-hmm. He was imprisoned for commenting on that. In a society such as this, it's not easy to talk. It's not easy to convey your opinion, primarily because if you're sitting there, suddenly the walls have ears. If you know that that's all it takes for you to go to prison, you're hardly going to get a Saudi who says I'm against what's happening in Saudi Arabia at this moment in time. And I think what really brought a lot of people to their senses on this point is a video that went viral Of I'm I'm trying to put this in a way that sounds respectable for this particular platform. But a woman who was in the nightclub surrounded by a group of Saudi men and they're all dancing and she's dancing in a very provocative way, hashtag twerking. And as the men are clapping and they start trying to grab her, she visibly on her face starts to panic. As if suddenly she's saying, this is not what I signed up for. And everybody started seeing the reality for what it is, what it is that bin Salman is allowing here. But going back to your question in terms of digressing, when we're talking about why bin Salman is implementing it, the reality is Saudi doesn't need drastic changes to its economy. It needs drastic changes even to its social contract. 100 percent. There are many people, even if they disagree with the entertainment, have long disagreed with the way that Saudis manage their deen or Saudi fatawa that come out of Saudi Arabia that many believe do not allow for correct social cohesion or the like.
3: So I would like to ask you about So, how much is this down to the austere interpretation of Islam that uh, many analysts here in the West argue uh, has created this reaction, Salafism, uh, the very conservative Islam that prohibited even what we would term to be acceptable forms of entertainment, how much of it is a reaction to that decades-long form of Islam?
2: I think that I would rephrase it slightly and say to what extent has that meant that the counter arguments towards bin Salman have been weakened significantly as a result of this idea. In other words, the Saudi is telling you, look, listen, you, Muhammad Jalal, I'm not saying this is your view, but the Saudi is saying to you, yeah, Muhammad, You yourself do not agree with much of how they were interpreting the deen in the first place. Why are you asking me to go back to that? And this is the issue in here. In that bin Salman is going from one extreme, if I dare to use the word extreme, it will upset some people. eh? From one extreme right to the other. They cover the woman from head to toe where barely her eyes are being seen to stripping her down to a bikini. It's going from one extreme all the way to the other. And I think that's one of the reasons why in Saudi Arabia it's happening quite forcefully. And the second reason it's happening quite forcefully is that if you think about the prevalence of the deen in Saudi Arabia, the idea that this is a society that was taught that you must obey the ruler even if he whips you a hundred times. The idea that the, the, the deen is about very established norms for both genders in society and the like. Bin Salman is aware that that has the ability to provoke a violent backlash to his reforms. So bin Salman is essentially adopting a policy of go hard or go home. I'm going to imprison all of these mashayikh to keep them quiet, to let them know I will not tolerate you guys mobilizing against me with regards to these reforms. And immediately you've seen the Mashaykh, you've seen many who've done 180 in terms of what they've actually been doing because of the fear that they've been having. But I think when we're looking at the brand of salivism that Saudi Arabia is, one thing that I will say is this, and I'm very wary in terms of how we talk about salivism in Saudi Arabia, primarily because a lot of the funding for Da'wah and other countries came from Saudi Arabia. A lot of the copies of the Quran, a lot of the du'at received funding from Saudi Arabia, even if they weren't Salafis. A lot of the organizations received funding, even if they weren't Salafis. There's been a lot that Saudi has done good as a result of the brand of Salafism that they have. It's not a defense of Salafism. We all have the criticisms of it. But the point here being is that Saudi Arabia, as a result of its unique brand of Salafism, is now implementing Bin Salman's Vision 2030 in a unique way, which is, crush these Mashaikh, and then let me do what I want in order to prevent them from
3: giving that backlash. The uh, Saudi authorities are not forcing uh, young people to attend these, uh, d- attend these um, uh, you know, uh, concerts and, and cinemas and, and various other forms of entertainment. Yet, from what we can see, tens of thousands of people attend the concert of, uh, of Mariah Carey and Nicki Minaj and, and the rest of uh, these Western artists. But there is a currency, there is an acceptance uh, on the Saudi street for uh, these really vile forms of entertainment.
2: I think that there is a welcoming amongst the Saudi population. The young population? Of, of, of a young population. I wouldn't say majority of them, primarily because if you imagine a concert takes 10,000 people, we're a population of 40 million in Saudi Arabia. The second point that's worth noting is that I think what young people are welcoming more than anything else is the absence for the first time of their life of very gruff men in long beards speaking to them in very derogatory ways, telling them, Ittaqillah, move out of the way or move out of the road or go dress appropriately. I think that one of the criticisms that many had in Saudi Arabia, especially of the religious police, was that when the Prophet Muhammad is encouraging you to use kind words even when it comes to advice, or when Allah says, you know, that The nice word is like a tall tree. I think that when a lot of the Saudi youth have lived their lives seeing everybody in a beard, very gruff, very angry, looking at you and telling you that you are a vile individual because you're doing so and so not in an appropriate manner. I think what Saudis are celebrating is that Bin Salman is removing this at last. Bin Salman is removing this from my life now. And this is what I mean in that it's very difficult sometimes to talk to a pro-Bin Salman Saudi and say to them that their past was better than their present. It's not to suggest that the present is any better, but rather to understand that so many of the Saudi youth, and this is very painful to say in a podcast and and, and it, it risks a backlash, but the point here being is that there are many Saudis who lived in conditions that you yourself or anybody listening would not have accepted to live in. The third point that's worth making is this, is that the Saudi youth are exploring something that is new. And something that is new often has that mysticism that is in place. But the reason I mentioned the video of the woman who is surrounded by the men and suddenly panics is because when the reality starts dawning, we're now seeing videos of Saudis coming out saying, this isn't what I expected it to be. We are ruining the education of our Saudi youth. Sheikh Imad, al-Bayid, for example, who was the khatib of the King Abdulaziz mosque in Dammam in the eastern, one of the big cities in the east. He did a video in which he said, two-minute video on Twitter, in which he said, I call on the Crown Prince and Turki Al-Sheikh, the right-hand man, the head of the General Entertainment Authority. Ittaqullah fi shababina, fear Allah in what you're teaching our generation, now our future generation. And
3: what happened to him?
2: And he finishes it off with may Allah bless the rulers of this nation. One day later, he receives another tweet. He he puts out another video and he says that what my first words were misunderstood, and I apologize because he realized that he's suddenly in trouble. And then he tweets and he says that he fled the country. The point here being is there are voices out there that are very worried about what this is doing to the generation. The fourth point that I would say in this, on this, and this is the final point I will say, there is often an assumption that when you see videos of thousands of Saudis at some of these concerts, that this reflects that the youth are on board with Mohammed bin Salman. Yet, when you look at the Arab Spring in a country such as Tunisia, which is where my father is from, Tunisia for 90 years or for 60 years, 70 years, would we'll do the math from 1956 to now, they had secularization top down. Bourguiba forced it. To the extent that Bourguiba during Ramadan sat on national television, drank a cup of orange juice and said, our economy cannot handle Ramadan right now. So break your fast and go and work so that the economy can be improved. Bourguiba, who really went and swept up on the religious influences in Saudi Arabia. Then bin Ali came, the similar thing. We used to say the walls have ears. When the first free and fair elections came, and Nahda came first, Islamist party. And in third place came Arida al also an Islamist party. Together, they made a majority in the parliament. They didn't choose to ally in the end. And Nahda went a different trajectory and chose to ally with the secularists. But the point is, they made the majority. In other words, despite all the videos that we saw of Tunisians on the beaches, despite the bikini beaches, their alcohol, despite the parties that we saw of Tunisia, when the first free elections came, the Tunisian population went towards Islam and anybody who waved the flag of Islam. And that's why I'm very wary in terms of how we measure popularity of these measures in Saudi Arabia. You cannot do it empirically because if you ask a Saudi, what do you think of bin Salman? He will think you've come from bin Salman and a black jeep is going to roll into his house the next day and carry him away and disappear. And Amnesty International will not ask about him if he has a beard. And if he doesn't have a beard, they will ask about him, but they won't do enough in order to release him because bin Salman now is a valuable ally that we need to reconcile with as well. So I'd be wary in terms of saying that the youth are celebrating it. I think there are a lot of people perhaps who are going to these parties and the raves and the like. But I think there are more people in Saudi who are very worried, very uncomfortable with what is taking place. And the proof is that bin Salman believes that to implement them, he needs to imprison people. To implement them, he must crack down on the population, which suggests that bin Salman himself knows that if he implements these measures without silencing his population, there will be a backlash. If he implements these measures without instilling fear in the population, there will be a backlash. So while some people are trying to insist, uh, there is a, a prominent Saudi analyst, we won't need to mention his name, but he, quoted, he, he gave a quote once to the Los Angeles Times in which he said, the Saudis are voting with their feet, suggesting they're going to, the, to these raves and their parties. If that was the case, the prisons will not be full. And I think that is one of the greatest indications to suggest that the Saudis are not entirely on board with it and that what bin Salman is building is this very awkward social contract. Dance till the depths of the night but don't ask me a single question about my policy. In other words, when Allah says he created man with human dignity, set that aside. You don't have the rights of a citizen. Just go and party and leave me to do what I want in this country. And I don't think Saudis are happy with that social contract.
3: But how much of this is to placate the West, to placate America, to uh, make Saudi Arabia seem to the Americans to be a country that has moved uh, beyond its former self and is now modernizing economically, but also socially? How much How much does foreign uh, intervention or foreign uh, uh, foreign control have anything to do with uh, these moves of liberalisation? I know anecdotes are bad form, but I hope whoever's listening will forgive me for using it in this
2: context. In 2018, I was invited to a closed door uh, conference on uh, maritime security in the Gulf. It was 18 of us: experts from the European Union, experts from the US, experts from some of the Gulf countries. In the meeting at that time was one of the most senior American generals of the American Army that's based in the Gulf. Chatham House rules means you're not allowed to say who said what. During that conversation, the topic of bin Salman's reforms came up. And the general told us a very interesting story. He said that he went with Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, during Donald Trump's time. In 2019, they went to Riyadh to meet with Mohammed bin Salman. And they were there to discuss issues related to oil and related to partnership. And he tells the story. And I don't think he necessarily read the room. I think because most of the room, it didn't look like there were any religious people in the room. It didn't look like, you know, there was a general view that perhaps this is not an environment where... You know, there are any religious sympathies that we're all on the same page here. Um, people might say, what were you doing there? Sami, I was invited by a good friend who recommended me, so I went. But anyway, the general told the story. He said, we were standing with Mohammed bin Salman, with Mark Esper, excuse the American accent, and the crown prince said something that floored us. And everybody in the room went, what did he say, what did he say? He said, "Mohammed bin Salman said to us, look, we all know what Saudi Arabia is like. We all know that we have these extreme ideologies here in Saudi Arabia. I need your support and I need 25 to 30 years in order to remove these influences from Saudi Arabia. I need your help, your assistance with this. I need you to send your experts to help me with it. Me hearing it, I'm thinking, okay, I'm sure other princes have said that before. And the general then says, as if he's read my mind, he says, no Saudi prince in power, no king or crown prince has ever said this to us before. No crown prince or king has ever said to an American official, we need to reign in Islam in Saudi Arabia. No one has ever said this to an American official before, and we went back to Washington stunned that at last we have a prince who's now talking in these terms. So the point here being is that I don't think the Americans have asked bin Salman to do this. I don't think the Americans even dreamed that the Saudi prince would come who would do this either, which suggests that bin Salman is not doing it necessarily to placate the West. But I think also because he believes in it. That he believes this is the way Saudi should move forward. That it should open up. Why shouldn't we have the Red Sea film festival where women come in elegant dresses like they do in the Oscars and we should celebrate them. Why can't we celebrate Eid in the way anybody who opens Twitter and goes to the General Entertainment Authority, you can find the post. They're hosting something called Eid Party 2023. Go and look at the lineup. It's women with their hair elegant going down. It's men doing rock concerts. It's which somebody might think, what's the problem with that? All I'm saying is, is that the way that you spend Eid in Saudi Arabia? But you look at the pictures, look at the design of what what bin Salman is pushing. I'm no longer sure that the Americans are the ones who ask this. This is something bin Salman himself wants to implement. And one thing that's quite fascinating and I remind people in order to put this into context. If you read the New York Times article, The Dark Prince of the UAE about Mohammed bin Zayed, notice that their coverage of the conversations between Gulf officials and American officials is not the American officials telling the Gulf issues, wallahi, we, they don't say wallahi, but they say, we, you know, we want you to do so and so. It's bin Zayed warning them that if you decide to recognize the democratic elections, suggesting Bin Zayed was scared that they would, if you recognize the democratic elections that deliver the Islamists to power, these Arabs, they don't know how to vote. Bin Zayed, Zayed says, according to the New York Times article, that if a man stood up in Mecca today and said, I am the Mahdi or I am going to deliver Islam, Bin Zayed said, 80% of my army would go and join this man in Mecca. The point here being is that it appears Bin Zaid is the one trying to convince the Americans that they should be firmer in this position as opposed to the Americans demanding it as a condition for the security of them. And the reason why I say that is so that we're aware of what the situation is before us. When Bin Salman bans the broadcast of Tarawih prayers in Saudi Arabia, the Americans have not asked that from him. When Bin Salman bans loudspeakers for the Quranic recitation and orders the reduction of the volume to a third of its volume, and when a village chief goes to the local authorities and says, we are the only mosque in this village, are you saying this rule applies to us? They say it applies to you as well. The Americans have not said anything about loudspeakers. When Bin Salman is imprisoning Abdel Aziz at and Salman al-Oda, Trump has never heard of Salman al-Oda. So the point here being, this is not the Americans saying, please do this for us. This is Bin Salman saying, I will do it for you. So back me and I need your backing with this. And one of the things the general said was quite fascinating is, he said, we're going to be announcing three universities opening in Saudi Arabia in order to facilitate the education of this next Saudi generation that is coming up. So the point here being is this. The, it may well be that part of the inclination is to win over the West by these reforms. But I think that underplays this liberal elite that exists in the Middle East, who have supported the coups in Egypt, who supported the coups in Libya, who supported the coup in Tunisia and are still supporting a liberal elite that fails to win over the majority that still leans towards Islam, who insist on using their power to impose ideas as opposed to coaxing the people into these ideas. I think Bin Salman, when he visioned 2030, it's from his own belief first, before it's about winning over the West.
3: You've mentioned Vision 2030 a few times there. Can you outline what this vision is?
2: Vision 2030 has two strands. The first strand is that the economy can no longer rely on oil. We need to badly diversify. We need to have Saudi... And perhaps to best highlight this example is not to give an anecdote on Saudi, but to give an anecdote on Algeria. There was once an ambassador in a particular country, we won't say which... In which, uh, you know, sitting in a room with some experts and they said to the ambassador, look, we have so much money now from the hydrocarbons, from the gas. You know, why don't we invest in tourism and build a tourism infrastructure? They can go to Qisantina, to Tilimsan, to Wahran, to Ghardaya. And the ambassador replied, "Eh, what do we do with tourism? We have gas. That's enough for us. Bin Salman wants to shift this mentality we need tourism we need technology we need startups we need funding to come into saudi arabia we need we need to be producing different things now we can't just be an oil base which is perfectly rational and this is why i started with that politics is a science of human relations that it's a reaction bin salman was came to power in a fire and he's navigating that he knows that he came to power when oil prices were low where suddenly the coffers were burning through the reserves. In the space of two, three years, one fifth of the reserves, one sixth, was suddenly depleted. Bin Saman is like, we need to urgently diversify the economy and we need to, Vision 2030 is about that, that by Vision twenty that by 2030, the economy will no longer be majority reliant on oil. This makes perfect sense. The second strand of Vision 2030, however, is the cultural and social reforms. That to enable the economic innovation, we need to remove
3: the chains of the religious thought how do they explain that because there doesn't seem to be a connection between diversifying your economy and religious thought i mean what is the connection he makes
2: bin salman makes the connection that in saudi arabia the celebrities are not elon musk or the like the celebrities are sheikh ayed al garni they are sheikh salah al mghamsi they are sheikh abdulrahman al sudais they are sheikh Saud al shreem they are if you count the top 50 celebrities in saudi arabia you would probably only have Muhammad Abdu and one other singer in the top 50. The rest are all Mashaykh. Bin Salman in 2021 or 2020, I might have the year wrong, but you can find it online on Google. People can search it. The statement is still in Arabic. And if you can't find it in the statement in Arabic, you can go to Twitter. There is, a, 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 I can't remember the handle, but it's Akbar al government affiliated account. Bin Salman announced that the hours that the children spend on Quran and Islamic studies in schools is to be significantly reduced. And in its place, we will introduce subjects of critical thinking. I know it's ironic given that anybody who speaks on Twitter is put in prison. But the point here being is that the di- the correlation Bin Salman makes is clear. Too much religion is hampering critical thinking with regards to development of the economy. Reduce the religion. And, and I think part of that is that when you ask the West to explain their enlightenment, to explain how they became the superpower that they are, they will always bring it back to their bitter war with the church that when they defeated the church, when they removed its influence, we had free thinking and we became a dominant economy. Bin Salman is importing a history that is alien from the region because as Ibn Khaldun said, that the, the conquered always wants to follow the conqueror's way. That the dominant powers, Bin Salman wants to be like the US in terms of its power and prosperity. So I should follow something very similar to them. So Vision 2030 in the cultural, social reforms, it's about liberating the Saudi population. I'm going to say this sentence only because it's what Bin Salman believes and not what I believe. We are going to liberate the Saudi population against from the chains of religion so that they can freely, think or critically think in terms of economic production so we can achieve Vision 2030.
3: Right. But the Europeans, when they remove the shackles of uh, religion, they not only uh, distance themselves from the church, but they also reform the church and they change the church and they change religion. Is there a a dimension uh, of this strategy to to change Islam uh, and to make Islam, especially, you know, the, as we said, the austere understanding of Islam, to turn Islam into something which is uh, completely different. This is a very difficult subject
2: to talk about. We'll, we'll start, we, we'll give three examples. Let's start with the first one. Sheikh Salah al-Ghamsi was the imam of Masjid Quba. Masjid Quba, for those who don't know, first Mosque built in Islam when the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ arrived in Medina. Masjid Quba is where, for those who listen to Muhammad Ayyub, the famous reciter who was the imam of Medina, he was discovered in Masjid Quba. Imam Al-Hudayfi, who our older generation still listen to because they love his recitation, Imam al was also discovered in Masjid Quba. Shirsal al mughamsi in Masjid Quba put a tweet out in which he described and said, in, uh, "During Corona, we need to." We already mentioned the example beforehand, but the idea that uh, to pardon people, he was removed from Masjid Quba and disappeared for a while. He's reappeared recently and did a podcast that was released during Ramadan. The Twitter or the tweet that the hook for you to listen to the podcast. Mughamsi argues that Muslims exaggerate in the traits of Umar bin Abdul Aziz, the one who's often considered as the fifth of the rightly guided caliphs. He says, we attribute, uh, people can find the tweet, it's still up. And if you can't find it, there's a screenshot on my Twitter. But the, the Mughamsi says, we attribute grand gestures of generosity that were not in him. And we attribute bravery and courage that were not in him. So why do we Muslims exaggerate with these things? Which evoked a response saying, what is this madhab that Sheikh Salah al-Ghamsi is coming in? That's the first example in terms of reforming how we view the
3: deen very gently. Okay, but, but you know, that sounds like a very, I don't know, uh, uh, it doesn't sound like a very central uh, Islamic argument you know, to make. It's a historical figure and, and you know, he cast doubt on, on a historical figure. I mean, how, why, why would you do that?
2: Let's start with that as an example
3: because that the, the answer
2: to that is seen in the context of what's happening. The second point, Muhammad bin Salman announces a series of measures where he says that loudspeakers must be reduced to 33% of the volume for the call to prayer and they are banned for Quran and khutbah. Some people might think, okay, loudspeakers might be annoying. How many revert stories have you heard of people walking down the street in a Muslim country hearing the Quran on the loudspeaker and saying that it moved me to the extent that I entered the mosque and then they became Muslim. That's the first thing. Second point is, why would you reduce the loudspeaker of the volume when you're amplifying the volume of the giant raves and the nightclubs? Second. The third point, when the when the people could not hear the khutbah on the Friday prayer, the first week after the rule was implemented, they said, we can't even hear the khutbah anymore. So they allowed it for the khutbah at a reduced volumes, but still not for the Quranic recitation. So we take that second measure along with Salih al talking about Umar ibn Abdulaziz. Then we talk about last year, where Bin Salman announced unusual rules for Ramadan, aside from the ones this year which we'll get to, in which one of them says, according to Arabic, that the, the broadcast of prayers may not be broadcast It cannot be broadcast on media in any form.
3: Media being what, TV...
2: It left it like that. In Ah. any media, so any form of media. And this was published on the Ministry of the Islamic Affairs website. So officially, all of the Arab elites understood it as it includes Mecca and Medina. And why are we suddenly banning the broadcast of prayers? So suddenly for 48 hours, there is no clarification if Mecca and Medina will be clearly safe. and anger is New Lines magazine now, it's, it's spreading in the English word, English world, Middle East I now and now reporting it. Suddenly well, is this going to include Mecca Medina? Forty eight hours later the Haramain comes out and says it will not include us. It took forty eight hours of a huge backlash, suggesting as if bin Salman was waiting to see what the reaction was. Why would you ban the broadcast of prayers of the mosques during Tarawih? If you thought it was haram for the mosques, why allow it for Mecca and Medina? If you thought that, for example, that uh, the imams can't be trusted or the likes, you allowed it before, why are you suddenly banning it now? What is it you're afraid of the imams that they might say? Moreover, there are many people who don't just watch Mecca and Medina, they watch Masjid Quba. Imam uh, Abdurrahman al-Sudais was discovered in Riyadh. Uh, Khalid al-Dosari was discovered in, in another city. He was discovered by the videos during tarawih. Why would you ban this in terms of the broadcast of the prayers? And then when you look at the Ramadan rules for this year, In which many people said that I read them and it looks fine. The Ramadan rules for this year. It said keep the prayer short. In line with the sunnah. Bin Salman who brings the giant raves and Mariah Carey etc. Is concerned about the sunnah with regards to Ramadan how you pray. Qunut, keep it short. People read it and said okay people take too long in dua. The meaning of the Qunut. The reason why it was. Was because if you notice in Hajj. We had a new Imam given the khutbah. Muhammad Al-Isa, the head of the Muslim World League. And if you listen to the khutbah. You would think it's not directed at Muslims, it's directed to Tel Aviv and Washington. It's all about Muslims. Beware those who come to you claiming to be part of the religion and they encourage you to do other things instead, i.e. Muslim Brotherhood. Beware Muslims of extremist thoughts that lead us not to pursue peace. Peace with who? Peace with Tel Aviv. Beware, oh Muslims of people who come to you and tell you that we shouldn't be part of this world. Talking about Donald Trump, talking about Washington and the like. In other words, the interference now in terms of what khutbah should be conveyed, should be delivered. Which, and now dua should, basically the issue of the kunut was, don't include current affairs in your dua anymore. Then comes the next rule, number five. All literature in the mosque should be sanctioned by the government. Which when you read it so far, you think sunnah, you think government, it's legitimate. But what does he mean sanctioned by the government? I'mad Ambayyid, who we mentioned earlier said, it in the education of our children. And he's a khatib on the mimbar on the pulpit. And Imad Bayid later said when he left that the duty of the imam on the pulpit is to ordain what is good and forbid what is evil. What it meant was that criticism of the General Entertainment Authority should not be entertained in the mosques. When Imad Bayed, who criticized the General Entertainment Authority, when he was forced to flee Saudi Arabia because he didn't feel safe, the Minister of Islamic Affairs, who signs on which books should be studied, was asked in an interview by Al-Ikhbariya, one of the Saudi state channels, what do you think about certain scholars who've been saying certain things? And the minister replied, these are people who belong to a deviant sect. So the idea of an imam saying that Turkey Al-Sheikh's giant raves, that the bikini beach that they're trying to establish in Jeddah, that the nightclubs, that the criticism of this by an imam, is that imam is the deviant for talking about that. Rule number five is, if you don't want to be like Imad and Bayez, If you don't want to be like Sheikh Saleh al-Mughamsi and be removed from your post, you will abide by these rules. In other words, rule number five, don't criticize the General Entertainment Authority. Then we get to the charity. Don't give donations to the mosque. Some of the Saudis responded and said, yes, because we have official channels of Ihsan and the like. I ask you, Muhammad, and I ask every Muslim listening, if you had the choice to give your money to the Imam of the mosque or to Muhammad bin Salman who tried to bring Nicki Minaj to Saudi Arabia, where would you prefer to give your money to? Then they talk about no iftar in the mosques. Every Muslim has an anecdote about an iftar in the mosque, about sitting opposite of somebody from another part of the world and how they exchange it and then they roll up the carpets and they throw iftar away. No one ever complains about the issue of cleanliness. It suddenly became an issue all of a sudden. Bin Salman says no iftar inside the mosque. And if they do iftar in the courtyard, no tents. I don't want families coming to join these tents and make it a festive occasion. Behind these rules that sound sane our more sinister intentions. When Bin Salman reduced the hours spent on Islamic education, he didn't say because I want to reduce Islam in the country. He said I want to promote critical thinking. He reduces the hours of Quran, reduces the hours of Islamic studies, reduces the sound of loudspeakers, bans loudspeakers for Quran, bans the broadcast of prayers that we all watch on our TikToks, on our Instagrams or the like. When we discover a new imam that we like and they discover, he bans all of that. Did he ban it for sunnah? Did he ban it? Because And that's the reason why in these rules, you see the de-Islamization being pushed. One of the rules was, do not bring your kids to the mosque because they disturb the worshippers. So Bin Salman does a giant rave at the gates of Mecca in Jeddah. People are doing Umrah, less than one hour away. He brings Pitbull and whoever, and giant raves, etc. And he wants to tell you, I don't want to disturb the worshippers. So the point here being, and the thing is this, Then the Soviet Union, how did they managed to squeeze the deen out of many of their populations. They didn't do it necessarily by just killing the imams, but also by restricting access to the mosque for the children. Uzbekistan, the reason why in 2016, the new president lifted the ban on children in mosques is because there is a growing resurgent Muslim population that is saying, we know this rule was designed to prevent Islam. Then people looked at the i'tikaf rules. Etikaf: the imam has to collect all the information, all the details of the person doing etikaf. People said, okay, you should know who's doing etikaf in the mosque. But coming from a Tunisian background, or even Algerian background. Under bin Ali's rule and Bourgeba's rule, anybody doing itikaf had to give all of their details to the government. At the end of Ramadan, they had the details of all the overzealous Muslims who were going out of their homes to spend 10 days to sit in a mosque and get close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These people would then be harassed in their jobs. Some of them kicked out of their jobs. They'd be, their families would be harassed as well. They would be monitored in terms of their access to the mosque until the person would say, and we have a famous story in Tunisia, where a man asked Sheikh Bin Bezala, Yes, Sheikh, in Tunisia, we are constantly harassed when we go to the mosque. Is it permissible for me to keep a bottle of whiskey in my glove box so that when I'm stopped, I can show him the bottle of whiskey so he doesn't think I'm a threat and therefore I will be able to access the mosque. When Bin Salman finishes Ramadan this year, when he's finished Ramadan, we're going after Ramadan, imagine the information he has on the people going to the mosque. What do you think he's capable of doing with that information? And that's why Muslims, they read the rules, thinking, yes, this sounds all perfectly reasonable. I see sunnah here. But innama l'amalu bin this has nothing to do with the sunnah. And this is why I think that when we're looking at how bin Salman is implemented, going back to your question, yes, but maybe Sheikh Al-Mamsi questioned Umar bin Abdul Aziz. Today he questioned Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, a, a figure considered, who is revered by Muslims everywhere. His stories are told everywhere, that during his reign they couldn't even find people to give zakat to. If it's Umar bin Abdul Aziz today, tomorrow it will be Uthman ibn Affan. The day after it will be Umar ibn Khattab, and then it will be Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, and then the minority will be the ones defending those Sahaba. Bin Salman is doing it slowly. And the proof, so that people might think that, maybe exaggerating, think about it this way. The fear of Muhammad bin Salman banning the broadcast of prayers in Mecca and Medina was so great amongst the Muslims, that when the exception was announced, we forgot that he would now banned it in every mosque outside of Mecca and Medina suggesting that Islam or the sound of the Qur'an on the loudspeakers, think about it. The sound of the Qur'an on the streets of Saudi Arabia overnight disappeared except for Mecca and Medina. You could walk in Riyadh or walk in Jeddah, hearing the recitation, Hearing an ayah that might make you go home and reconcile with your wife. Hearing an ayah that might make you go back and feel maybe you were harsh with your son and you go speak to him differently. An ayah that might make you feel like, you know, I've neglected my parents. I'm going to go and call my parents. That now is silent in Saudi Arabia because we were so scared he would ban in Mecca and Medina. We forgot it's now banned in all the other mosques as well. As if bin Salman, what he did in one night was he moved the sound of the Quran from all of Saudi Arabia And limited it now to Mecca and Medina as if suddenly Islam is going to become like the Vatican within a one kilometer radius. I ask every Muslim, is this what you would be satisfied with with regards to what bin Salman is doing in Saudi Arabia? And this is the point that I'm making, that bin Salman is chipping away at it, chipping away at it in a way in which he's able to justify it to you through the announcement. But when you strip away the PR of the announcement, you see what's dark and sinister underneath I think the reality is this. What makes Islam such a potent threat to authoritarian regimes and indeed to Western governments is that Islam requires no intercessor between a man and his Lord. It requires no intercessor between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah has ordered every human being to enjoin what is good and forbid what is evil. You don't need an intercessor to tell you that you should be enjoining good and forbidding evil. In other words, that rebellion against oppression and that which is wrong is something that every single human being is capable of by virtue of what Allah has said in the Quran. That's the terrifying thing about Islam. That there is no, you don't have to wait for a priest or the like. That you can go to social media and denounce what an authoritarian person is doing. And that Islam evokes such resonance amongst the population that all it takes is for a random individual to say, and the whole population will say with him. That's what's terrifying about Islam for Muhammad bin Salman or for the authoritarianism. That's why there's a need to constrain it and constrain people who want to associate with it publicly. And I think the other thing that's worth noting is that when you think about it, the Ottoman Empire fell in the 1920s. Then we had secularism in Turkey. Then when they had their first free and fair elections, they vote Erdogan and the AK party. And now Turkey has transformed so much in 20 years that Kilic Darulu, the opponent of Erdogan, is appealing to the conservative elements, trying to quote ayat of the Quran and trying to insist that he also believes in Allah and swearing and promising that he will not ban hijab again. That's how much, because he knows now that the liberated Turkish society leans more towards Islam. In the Arab Spring, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Syria, at the forefront of the opposition and the most beneficiaries of the Arab Spring were not the Muslim Brotherhood per se, but anybody who raised the flag and said, I am going to implement, la ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. That's what the terrifying thing is with regards to Muhammad bin Salman. And I think that going back to your question in terms of what's next, the question for Muhammad bin Salman is, how do I contain this influence? I see Sudan today where despite the fact that Omar Bashir has fallen, I see the Americans are still struggling to prevent the Sudanese from insisting on their right to vote. And if they vote, they will deliver the Islamists back to power. Ghanoushi was only able to be ousted by a coup. I'm not saying Ghanoushi represents Islam, but I'm saying that, uh, to put it m- more clearer, I was in Egypt 2013, covering the elections before Mursi was elected. I went from Iskandaria in the north all the way down, Luxor, El Minya, and, and passed it. I went to Suhag. There's a big agriculture. It's a big agricultural area. It's a city and this an agriculture agricultural area. And I'm speaking to local farmers. And I say to them, Who will you vote for? We will vote for Morsi. What is it about his program, his political economic program that pleases you, etc.? The guy goes, Listen, I don't care about no political no economic program. We want somebody who fears Allah. And I said, But surely that can't be enough. Like, you need to look at what he's going to offer you. Sami. If he fears Allah, Allah will open the heavens for him. The idea being that affinity. And that's why the liberals in the region supported the coups. Because they couldn't win elections. They went and they pleaded, and they couldn't win elections. That's what Muhammad bin Salman is concerned about. What Muhammad bin Salman wants to do, and it's clear in the way he implements his reforms. He wants to, his, work, his best case scenario is to silence Quran in Saudi Arabia. Keep Islam in the personal sphere. In your homes or in your mosque. If he can't achieve that, Keep Islam in Mecca and Medina. Let Muhammad Jalal go to Umrah and whoever else go to Umrah. Let them take some nice social media pics next to the Kaaba and whatever, and they'll be part, maybe 5% of my economy while I bring in all these other guys to come in for the giant raves and the bikini beaches and the like. That's it. But in the meantime, Muhammad bin Salman is taking great care to ensure that as he de Islamizes, Muslims are unaware of what's happening. I've had people who say, I don't know, I would never know what bin Salman is doing. If it were not for some tweets that I read here and there, that when they heard the Ramadan restrictions for this year, people were stunned. They refused to believe it. Instead, they said, you're the liar for talking about it. It's not my problem if you're not following what bin Salman is doing, but it's dangerous what he's doing. People, when they land in Jeddah airport now, if you notice, it's all women at the passport checkout, which I have nothing against. But what I'm asking is this, is the emancipation of women that they stamp passports in the airport. But the point is Bin Salman is doing it to make a sign so that when they land in Jeddah, Muslims, they see the airport is no longer for them to welcome them for Umrah. The airport is now to welcome non-Muslims to come to Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia bin Salman wants to make it open for non-Muslims, not necessarily for Muslims. That's why we've seen now Israelis much more confident in announcing that they've been to Medina, that they're planting trees, that I went to Mecca, that I went to the Holy Mosque in Masjid al-Nabawi and I'm taking pictures because the environment is moving towards one in which I'm opening up. It's why there was an announcement last year in 2022 about demolishing parts of Mount Uhud in order to build the most luxurious complex Why would you demolish parts of Mount Uhud that the Prophet Muhammad said, it loves us and we love it. In other words, it was a big God. But the point here being that what bin Salman is, is doing is this, where he's going. Yeah, Muhammad Jalal, you want to pray, do it in your home or go do it in the mosque. But don't talk about it on the street anymore. You want to go and hear some Quran, put it up on YouTube or go inside the mosque. It will no longer be heard on the streets. That's not my Saudi Arabia. That's not my vision in terms of where I'm going forward. And I think that the way that he's doing it is, it will not be by convincing the population. For people tried over a century to convince the population to turn away from Islamic thought and from Islamic principles. It won't be through coaxing the population. It will be through coercion and the raves and the like. And to finish on this particular point, the raves and the the other concerts and nightclubs that he's implementing is merely a decoration of the prison that he intends for the Saudi citizens. It's for the Saudis to say, yes, I have no civil rights. I have no civil participation. When bin Salman's man comes to take my land and my house, and he demands it as part of Vision 2030, I have no rights to resist him. I should be kicked out of my own, but I can go and party tonight in Jeddah. But I can go and go to the rave. And that's what's happening, I think, in Saudi Arabia. And I think that where bin Salman panics, is when the Muslim awareness suddenly wakes up to what he's doing. And I think the greatest proof of that, and I know I've gone on a bit on this point, but the reason why I want to emphasize this is to give two examples. The first is the Kuala Lumpur summit of 2019. Mahathir Muhammad of Malaysia invited Turkey, Qatar, Pakistan, Indonesia, which combined form more than almost more than half of the ummah of this world. More than 500, 600, more than a billion actually population, if you consider Indonesia and then Pakistan. But he invited all those to a summit in Kuala Lumpur. The summit was clear. We are going to challenge Saudi Arabia's leadership of the Muslim world. We're not happy with what bin Salman is doing. Bin Salman panicked to the extent that he calls Imran Khan, and who's prime minister at the time, and says to him, Wallahi la ilaha illahu, If you go to this Kuala Lumpur summit, I will withdraw my investments from Pakistan and the Pakistanis who live here sending remittances, I'll kick them out and send them back to Pakistan. Imran Khan pulls out. He calls Joko Widodo, the president of Indonesia. Wallahi la ilaha illahu. If you go to Mahathir Mohammed's Kuala Lumpur Summit, I will withdraw the investments that you badly need to build a new capital that you want to move from Jakarta. And I will make sure that the Indonesians who work here as maids and as servants, I'll kick them all out and they won't be able to send their remittances. Joko Widodo sends his apologies to Mahathir Muhammad. Mahathir Muhammad panics, decides to call Iran, a very controversial Muslim power that makes all the Muslims go, mm, I'm not sure, Mahathir, if this is the right way to go. And Bin Salman succeeds in cautioning it. But the, but the point here is this, Bin Salman panicked. When the Ummah suddenly gathered to move the center of power from Saudi Arabia to somewhere else, he acted because he's aware that they can hurt him badly. The second example, when Imran Khan kept using the OIC over and over again Kashmir, Palestine, Kashmir, Palestine, UN, Islamophobia the Emiratis and the Saudis became very frustrated and annoyed because bin Salman did not want to be called upon with regards to Muslim duties at a time in which he was flirting with normalization with Israel. UAE had already normalized. So when Imran Khan was toppled by eventually in Pakistan, one of the things that Saudi did was they received the generals, some of the generals in Saudi Arabia, in a clear sign to say, we're happy with what is going on, we have no problem. And the third example is that if every video that goes viral that exposes Mohammed bin Salman's policies, all the journalists associated with the royal court respond immediately. All the Saudi trolls and Saudi bots respond immediately. And the reason they do so is because they are scared of something. They are scared that public opinion can be channeled into something potent that threatens Mohammed bin Salman. When I go back to the anecdote about the general who said that bin Salman needs 25, 30 years, the reason he needs 25, 30 years is because bin Salman is aware That if he pushes too hard on the de-Islamization front, it will provoke a reaction from the Ummah that might even unseat him from power. And that's why Bin Salman goes gradually with the Ramadan rules that make a sheikh in America say, this is sunnah. Even though the implementation of the rules is counter to everything to do with sunnah. But as long as I have people who say, as one sheikh once put it to me, because he said, look, I want to go Umrah. I don't want to get involved in in these things. I want to get involved in and I want and I don't want to be banned from Saudi Arabia or the like. But the point here being is this, the only thing that can prevent bin Salman is increasing awareness amongst the Muslim population of what is happening because bin Salman still believes that Muslims have power to reverse what he's doing.
3: Let's move to uh, geopolitics, to regional politics. Um, in recent weeks, in recent months, there's been a rapprochement between the Saudi Arabia, Saudis and Iran. There was a secret meeting culminating in a public agreement brokered by China in Beijing. Now, the two countries have engaged in, for the best part of a decade, even beyond that, have been engaged in a multidimensional regional conflict, the Yemen war being just one uh, part of this proxy battle, but Syria, Iraq, Bahrain, Lebanon are all part of this regional rivalry. What lay behind the March 10th agreement between the two countries?
2: I think that in order to understand the Saudi-Iran, it's important to put the agreement or the, or the, or the, or the truce, as I call it, I don't call it Garprashmo, the truce into context. The reason Saudi Arabia and Iran are at odds with each other is because when anybody in Riyadh sits and opens up a map of the politics of the region, he sees to his north there is the Hashd al-Shaabi that has been incorporated into the Iraqi army, which is Shia, Iran-backed militias that have fired rockets in the past, including towards the royal palace in Riyadh. That's on your northern border. To your eastern border, you have Iran. You have the Qataris who have good ties with Iran. You have the UAE, which has good ties with Iran. And Iran has threatened on numerous occasions to close the Hormuz Strait, from which 33% of the oil ships go past. To your south, you have the Houthis who are firing missiles at you, including at your oil facilities and also over Jeddah when Formula One was being held at the time in which the international cameras were on Saudi Arabia. As Saudis believe legitimately, put bin Salman out of the picture for a second, Legitimately, that there is a pincer forming on Saudi Arabia, which has been compounded by a video that went viral. Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, the man who was killed alongside Qasem Soleimani in the drone strike in Baghdad that Trump killed, Qasem Soleimani, the legendary legendary, I don't use it in a positive way, but the notorious commander... Uh, of the uh, Iranian revolutionary guards who was behind the demographic changes in Syria to move Sunni populations out and replace them with Shia populations as part of ceasefire deals. Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis there is a video that leaked where he's talking to Iranian students in Persian where they tell him, "Yeah, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis you are a hero, we will soon be in Palestine and he says, no, no, not Palestine Riyadh, Riyadh, Israel is not the enemy, Riyadh, Riyadh. So Saudi Arabia legitimately believe that Iran is a major threat and Iran has intentions to go towards Saudi Arabia. The reason that context is important is because it shows you why this is a truce and not a rapprochement. Iran, as part of this deal, is not withdrawing from Iraq. It's not withdrawing from the eastern side. It's not withdraw- The Houthis are not withdrawing from Yemen and they're not going to be reined in, in Yemen either. Bashar al-Assad, Iran's ally, is going to be normalized and rehabilitated back into the Arab League despite the destruction and mass killings that he's done in Syria. As far as geopolitics goes, Iran is now on the verge of being able to entrench all of its allies in this region, which then begs the question, why on earth would Saudi Arabia agree to such a truce that entrenches uh, powers that are clearly inclined towards targeting Saudi Arabia? And the, and the reason is, bin Salman is frustrated and he's tired and he's actually struggling. Bin Salman, if, let's put it into context. Bin Salman comes to power in 2017 as crown prince of Saudi Arabia. 2018, he goes to America. He meets Mark Zuckerberg, Oprah Winfrey, etc. We talked about it earlier. In the same year, however, Khashoggi is brutally murdered in Istanbul embassy. Yes. And suddenly, Bin Salman becomes a pariah. Yes. I remember in my work as a consultant for companies, I remember that there were many who said, listen, we couldn't care less about the human rights abuses, but Khashoggi now makes it impossible for us to go and do business with Bin Salman. And we are waiting for when this cloud will lift so that we can take advantage of the opportunities of Vision 2030. But the point here being is that even those who were excited by Vision 2030 felt they couldn't go to Saudi because of Khashoggi. It was for reputation-wise, it was unfeasible. Yes. Then COVID comes along. Nobody's investing. Economic downturn and whatever. They can't seem to get through whatever. Then COVID lifts. The Houthis start hitting the oil facilities, and it starts hitting over Formula One. So people are now scared about the security of Saudi Arabia. We're 2023. Six years Bin Salman has been in power. Vision 2030 has not gathered any of the investment that that it promised in 2018. Bin Salman's frustration was made clear when last year he imposed tariffs on goods coming in from the UAE because Bin Salman said that companies were trying to set up in the UAE in order to do business in Saudi Arabia. So they set up in the UAE where they prefer life. They cross the border, which is easy to cross, and they do business in Saudi Arabia. Bin Salman said from now on, any goods that come from the UAE will put tariffs. The order said from GCC countries, but everybody knew that it meant it was in regards with the UAE. Second, anybody listening to this, open up social media and search Saudi UAE border traffic. You will see that twice now, last year and this year, Bin Salman has randomly ordered spot checks on the border, resulting in long queues of trucks that have been lingering there for days. Bin Salman essentially saying, okay, you want to you want to stay in UAE and come do business? I'll show you why I'm going to make it impossible for you to do business for UAE. I'm just going to randomly make your life difficult. The third point, Bin Salman announced that anybody who does not have his headquarters in Riyadh will be forbidden from bidding from government contracts from 2024. In other words, you better come here now. In other, and this evoked a reaction from a number of American journals, which published and said, quite simply, we don't like life in Saudi Arabia, which is why we don't want to come. We want to see alcohol. We want to see other things. We want to see more opening up, as they call, before we come. And that's why there are suggestions that perhaps Saudi Arabia will do what Qatar did, which is allow alcohol in certain areas as part of this opening up, part of this excuse to open up. But the point here being is that Bin Salman is saying, okay, look, Yemen, I'm clearly not going to win. Because in Yemen, I don't want the Houthis to win, but I don't want this government to be reinstated because the Muslim Brotherhood are too strong in it. So he got caught in this no man's land of catch-22, where neither was he able to defeat the Houthis, and neither was he able to reform the government to prevent the Muslim Brotherhood from having power. So I may as well make peace with the Houthis, and keep them there, and give them money to keep them quiet. The Iran uh, says, okay, this is an opportunity. The Houthis have got as much as they can militarily. Let me use this truce to entrench the Houthis. Why not? In Iraq, the Iran, Muqtada Sadr, one of his allies, the, of the Shia allies. Muqtada Sadr, for those who want context, Muqtada Sadr is the, is the disgruntled ally of Iran who's always forced by Iran to back somebody he doesn't like. So in Iraq, for example, they'll go into elections. He'll argue with his partners in Iraq and Iran will come in and say, look, I don't want you to argue. I want you to go lend you support and form a government with him. And al Sadr would do it because he has allegiances or has allies with Iran. Sadr comes first in the elections in Iraq, in the last elections. So suddenly he says to the Iranians, it's my turn now. Can you tell the people that you made me back that they should back me? And Iran says, no, we don't want you to be part of the government. We want this person and we'd like to kindly ask you, to go and support that person. Muqtada al-Sadr tries a revolt, tries to ally with the Sunnis and the Kurds, to a government, whatever. And the Iranians eventually manage to maneuver and kick him, kick him out of the parliament. And Sadr says, okay, I'm, res- I'm retiring and I'm going to go and resign. But the point here being is that Iran says, let me do this truce with Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia has been trying to win over Muqtada al-Sadr and I can take my time to reconcile between these different factions or the like. So the point here being is that for, for Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia says, look, if I can get the Houthis quiet, who I can't beat, if I can get the Iraqi militias to be quiet, if I can get Iran to stop getting these militias to throw missiles at me, I can spend some time to focus on getting this money that I need to build the line, to build Neom, to build Boulevard U Walk. It's literally called Boulevard U Walk. To build you know, all these different policies. I, I need the money otherwise because I'm still stuck with oil. I'm having to cut production to keep oil prices high. I'm not diversifying the economy like I should, which I need to desperately do. Biden is antagonistic and releasing supplies of his own oil, which is affecting the price here and there, forcing me to cut more oil instead. So I need now time to get money. And Iran says to itself, look, the Muslim world is going to see that Bin Salman is doing giant raves and moving away from Islam. So all that Saudi soft power that made people sympathize with Saudi is going to disappear. Let him destroy himself. Let's let him do Vision 2030 until the Muslims turn on Saudi Arabia and we'll take our time to entrench so that we're ready to take advantage of it and eventually go towards Mecca ourselves and maybe perhaps even take... So that's why I think for Saudi Arabia, it's a truce in that Bin Salman doesn't believe Iran will withdraw. He believes that in the next five, six years, they'll go back to clashing once more. But Bin Salman says, I have urgent priorities. I need my giant raves to succeed. I need my vision 2030. I need to build the line and I need the money now. And that's why they agreed to it. The last point I want to make is this. You said China broke the agreement. Yes. What I will say is this. China came at the last leg. Iran and Saudi were already talking for two years via Qatar, Iraq, and Oman. When the Chinese came... There is a sense that rather than China brokering the agreement, it feels as if Saudi and the Iranians did a favor that cost nothing. Let's say China brokered it. We were already on the verge of an agreement. Let's say China brokered it so that we can win China and we can keep them on board as we try to squeeze the Americans or the like. And it worked. And that's why I think the Americans, when you look at their statements, they're not particularly worried that China brokered it because they don't believe China brokered it. And I think a lot of people are excited, and, and, and which, which, which puzzles me sometimes to use the word excited, because sometimes I feel as Muslims, you know, we dislike American foreign policy. So it's like we cheer Russia and China, whereas China has made absolutely clear what it thinks of Muslims with the Uyghur. And Russia has made absolutely clear what it thinks of Muslims in its bombardment of Syria and Libya. So I'm not sure what, why suddenly Muslims believe that we, it should be either or. But the point here being is that with China, the Americans believe that China broke it, that Bin Salman is just upset. And that, you know, this isn't something serious that might extend. But to conclude, it's a truce, not a rapprochement. And it's a truce in which Saudi is conceding as opposed to Iran.
3: Can can I explore the relationship then, the current relationship between Saudi Arabia and uh, the Americans? So for a long time, and I said in my introduction, there is this perception that the Saudis are the reliable allies of the Americans in, in the region. Um, and for, as I said, for, for many years, you know, it's, you could put a, a thin line between Saudi policy vis-a-vis oil, vis-a-vis uh, uh, its machinations in the region, vis-a-vis Iran and, uh, and the Americans. It's, it's very clear that these two countries see eye to eye on a lot of issues. Barack Obama said it's complicated. And that was, a, you know, a, 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 a term that implied that um, the Americans need Saudi Arabia uh, as an ally in the region. Has that weakened in recent years? Of course, you know, you're right about the, the Beijing Agreement and you know a lot of it was about symbolism. But is there a perception, if not a real movement, uh away from the Americans? Uh a lot of analysts have been talking about strategic autonomy, but Mohammed bin Salman is has recognized that to put all of your uh your your apples in one basket uh is a it's probably not a favourable place to be for uh, the Saudis. How do you analyse that relationship?
2: I think that a lot of Muslims talk about the Saudi-US relationship in very simplistic terms, that Saudi is the stooge of, Saudi, of America and Saudi follows what America says or the like. But I think that when you talk to American officials in particular, they will never describe it in these terms, not out of respect for Saudi Arabia, but because they've never believed this was a relationship at all. They will talk about difficulties with every Saudi king, with King Faisal who relied on the Americans to push back against communism that was being supported by Abdel Nasser in Egypt. The socialist government was going to be formed in Yemen. The Russians were backing it. And the Saudis believed Islamically that communism was haram, sharan, and it shouldn't be supported, and therefore their natural ally was the Americans over the Russians. There was a common agreement there. In Afghanistan, for example, the Saudis and the Americans worked together, primarily because they were also against the Russians. And the Saudis were against the Russians, not because the Americans were against them, but because the Saudis believed that through Abdel Nasser, through Egypt, and then through Sadat for a short while, and through Yemen, the Russians were becoming a dangerous threat, and therefore, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. In other words, Islam it's It's not that the Saudis suddenly said to the Americans, Wallahi, we're prepared to be your stooge, but rather the Saudis identified a common enemy and the Americans were very willing to help. Even in the time of King Fahd, people often talk about that the Saudis or, or the likes helped the Americans with regards to Iraq, forgetting that Saddam Hussein, when he invaded Kuwait, essentially troubled all of the Gulf states. They all looked at one another and said, Hang on a second. An Arab brother has invaded an Arab brother. Saddam has made clear that he has disdain for us. Saddam might come invade us tomorrow. And Hamad bin Jassim, in a recent interview with the BBC, he says quite bluntly that when he met Saddam, he said, Saddam said to him, why do you guys despise me? And Saddam, said, and, uh, bin J- Hamad bin Jassim, the Qatari Prime Minister, says to Saddam, he says to him, you invaded Kuwait. And you invaded it with no regard for brotherhood or anything. And you The point here being, it's not entirely about we're chasing the Americans, but rather real politic of the region, whether you agree or not, is irrelevant. I always say sometimes that everyone is a genius on the bench. When you're sitting and you're not involved in the politics, it's easy to say he should have done this, he should have done that. I'm not saying that what they did is right either. What I'm saying is it's not as straightforward as being the American stooge. And the other example is 2001, where just before 9-11, King Abdullah is cancelling bilateral agreements with the Americans, threatening to cut ties, withdrawing ambassador because the George Bush has made a speech blaming the Palestinians for the Israeli attack on Palestine. In other words, and the Americans, if you read the accounts, you can also read the Washington Post, they genuinely believe this is going to be the thing that kills the Saudi-US relationship, suggesting King Abdullah believed he had enough autonomy to push back against the Americans. Point here being a shared interest. Going back to your point in terms of Bin Salman, whether he's moving away from the Americans. If we look at it in the context of this historical relationship, Ups and downs. This is one of the downs. Right. I think that when it comes to Mohammed bin Salman, his ideal situation is that the Americans come to him and say to him, we're sorry for what we did. And we are coming now to Rescue Vision 2030. And if that happens, bin Salman will tell them, Hala wa marhaba. Amma salaf. Allah forgives what has, what has been passed. And we are going to be good friends. Yeah. China has always been a plan B. I think that when it comes to bin Salman's relationship with Saudi Arabia, what hurts him the most And hurts implies he's a victim. I'm not saying he's a victim. But what hurts him the most is that America, which is happy to deal with dictatorships, with authoritarians, which invades Iraq illegally, which invades Afghanistan illegally, which has rendition programs, which does coups in Africa and other continents, which is ready to conduct human rights abuses, suddenly became self-righteous when it came to him and Khashoggi. Bin Salman believes he's been treated very unfairly that you're treating me the way you didn't treat anybody else. Again, not a victim. I'm saying in in, in the context, within the framework. So Bin Salman's relationship with America is, listen, if they're going to treat me this way, if Biden wants to use me to score points, halas, Saudi has always had some autonomy and I'm going to wield it the same way King Faisal did once, although there's no comparison between him and King Faisal. I'm going to wield it the way King Abdullah did and I'm going to wield it myself today. The point here that I'm making is, Bin Salman is not unique in wielding autonomy. Saudi has done it before. So Bin Salman is saying, okay, oil, gas and inflation, I'm going to cut production. And I'm going to cut it again one month before the midterm elections to really hurt you. Then I'm going to cancel bilateral agreements. Then I'm going to invite Xi Jinping and I'm going to do a big, nice red carpet. Then I'm going to go to Iran and I'm going to sign a truce at the same time you're trying to isolate them. Then I'm going to cancel plans for normalization with Israel because Netanyahu promised me that he would be able to fix my relation with you. He promised me that he would get Congress and White House, and he
3: hasn't. Netanyahu, you promised, you didn't fulfill your promise, so I'm not going to normalize. But there seems to be some strategic thinking there then. I mean, you know, one can, of course, quibble and and certainly criticize uh, what MBS is doing. But there is some strategy there. There is a method to this madness. Astaghfirullah, la ilaha illahu. It's a genius
2: strategy. This is an example of bin Salman really demonstrating statesmanship and this really pains me to say it as given what he's doing in Saudi Arabia, but strictly amoral politics, it's an excellent display of Saudi autonomy and putting Biden in a position where he can't do anything about it. To put Biden in a position where Macron will ignore America and come visit you in Riyadh. And then Boris Johnson will come and visit you in Riyadh. And then the German Chancellor will come and visit you on Riyadh. And then companies will say, we're ready to help you with Vision 2030. Or people will say, please help us with oil. A lot of it has come about by circumstance, not by bin Salman's machinations. But for bin Salman to use it in that way to his advantage is certainly a demonstration of amoral, an emphasis on amoral statemanship. Amoral is in one word, not two words, not amoral state. Amoral is in no morality involved in this statemanship whatsoever. So I think in this regard, what people admire in it, or admire is a big word, what people are seeing in it is a demonstration of autonomy. But the reason I started the answer with reflecting what Saudi kings have done in the past is to emphasize that this is not a bin Salman phenomenon. Saudi kings have been prepared to exert autonomy. But I think when you look at history in abstract, they can look like stooges. When you look at history in terms of its real realpolitik of what actually happened in, in, in the region, you will see that A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D. And if you follow it from A to Z, you will understand why they made decisions, even if you don't agree with it. But if you start NZ, you think they were stooges. And that's why I think with regards to Bin Salman's situation. Having said that, it's genius in terms of how Bin Salman is trying to maximize his interests. But he's in a position of weakness. And I think one of the things that's quite fascinating is if you look at the deals being signed with China, a lot of them are still memorandums of understanding. right? Because the Chinese are taking advantage of the PR and the diplomatic PR. But the Chinese are not stupid. The Chinese are aware that Bin Salman is flirting with them to spite the U.S. The Chinese want to see real, tangible movement towards a shift. The second point is, open a map of the U.S. military bases. U.S. is not being replaced anytime soon. No country comes near the number of military bases that the U.S. has in the region. Bin Salman can't compromise Saudi security by going towards the Chinese or the like. That's the second point. And the third point is, that even the idea of when you look at the dynamics of the Iran-Saudi truce, or the rapprochement, as you call it, or some people are calling it, the reality is that China's minimal role does suggest that a lot of it is bluster. To the extent that the UAE itself believes it's a bit too much, and that's why Bin Zayed didn't go to the to the to Xi Jinping's visit to Riyadh. When Xi Jinping came to Riyadh, Bin Zayed didn't go. He said, I'm not taking part in this big theatrical, ostentatious display of defiance of the US. That means absolutely nothing. If he felt there was a shift towards China, I think Bin Zayed would have gone. But Bin Zayed believes that the Chinese are not going to give us anything that the Americans can't give us, so it's not worth provoking. So I'm staying here. And Bin Salman got upset because he wanted the Bin Zayed. Because when Bin Zayed didn't go, everybody saw through the, the fluff of what was taking place. But the point here being is that Bin Salman is demonstrating strategic autonomy that Saudi Arabia has always had the capability of demonstrating. He's using it in order to navigate a very difficult situation, a very difficult circumstance. Having said that, a lot of that is of his own making. Sometimes I think, what would have happened if he hadn't killed Khashoggi? Or he denies it sometimes I think what would have happened if Khashoggi had not been murdered sometimes I think what would have happened if perhaps the war in Yemen instead of being scared of the Muslim Brotherhood he had immediately gone in as he drove the Huis out of Aden, facilitated their march on Sana'a restored the internationally recognized government and boom won the goodwill of the Yemenis and he would have been able to cut Iran's arm in Yemen Instead, he sat idly by. In other words, we're describing it as suddenly wonderful statesmanship. But it's statesmanship that's emerging after incredible blunders over the past five years. Which is why I call the moves genius as opposed to him being genius. In other words, he's in, in crisis management. He's making the best of a situation that he created for himself. And that's why I think that it's, it's, it's people are talking about the relationship with China. But I think we're still way far off. And if, even if you look at Pakistan, for those who... Pakistan talks about balancing between China and the US, but talk too much about China. And the US can can easily, I won't say that they're the ones who did a coup or the like, but the US can easily pull levers that certainly squeeze Pakistan to the extent that Pakistan recalibrates. Let's put it in those terms.
3: Can I ask you about um, normalization of relationships with Israel? Uh, Now, we know that the two countries have been very close allies for a very long time. Uh, but for some reason, uh, Saudi Arabia is still hesitant to formally take this step like many of its neighbors. Uh, is this down to internal pressure? What, what's going on here? Hamid bin Jassim, the former Qatari prime minister, gave an interview with France 24 in 2018,
2: November 2018. Anybody, I recommend everybody listening to watch that interview. It's very interesting. Hamid bin Jassim tells the presenter that when... Arab states normalize with Israel, this is quote verbatim. When Arab states normalize with Israel, it's not because they like the Israelis. It's because they believe that Israel is the key to the White House and U.S. Congress. Of course, he finished the sentence with, but when we Qataris normalize with Israel, we did it because we sincerely believe. But that's not the point. But I want to focus on this point. In 1996, the Qatari emir Hamad bin Khalifa topples his father. The father goes to the Saudis and UAE and says to them, please, my son has done a coup on me while I'm having medical treatment in Europe. Please restore me to my position. So they threaten to invade Qatar. Hamad bin Khalifa calls the Americans, and this is on Al Jazeera's documentary. So it's not, they are are proud of this. They call the American ambassador at 3 a.m. and say, we are willing to establish ties with Israel and give you the largest military base in the region if you can stop the Saudi invasion. The American ambassador tells us or the documentary narrates how the American ambassador called the White House and then called the Saudis and ordered the Saudis not allowed to invade. And Qatar went to open the Israeli office. It set up the largest US military base. And Qatar benefited significantly from being the forward-thinking country, pushing towards peace and navigating itself in the space of having good ties with Israel and Palestine in order to broker truce and broker negotiations or the like. Some people might not like that narrative, but that's Al-Jazeera's version, not mine. And Hamid bin Jason's version. The UAE says, look, Qatar has benefited from this relationship with Israel. And to be honest, the Palestinians, hopeless cause. And they are too much aligned with this pan-Islamism thinking and Islamist thinking, you know, Hamas and Gaza or whatever, and Fatah are a useless organization. And the Americans are pressing me a bit too hard. And I don't like the way my relationship with the Americans. Netanyahu, what can you do for me in the White House? I'm trying to constrain the Qataris after the Arab Spring and whatever, and I don't like Obama and I'm struggling, etc. So UAE normalizes with Israel and secures, quite bluntly, such influence in the Congress and the White House that if you notice, very rarely does it ever get called out for any of its foreign policy in Libya or Ethiopia or Egypt or Yemen. In Yemen, it's all Saudi. No one talks about the UAE and its secret prisons or the like. No one talks about it. UAE succeeds so emphatically in winning over the U.S. with this normalization of ties with Israel. And that's why UAE doesn't care what Israel does to Palestinians and never leverages it. So the reason why I mentioned it is to put into context. Now put yourself in Bin Salman's shoes. God forbid you ever find yourself in those shoes. Put yourself in Bin Salman's shoes. Qatar benefited from normalization of ties with Israel to the extent that some argue there's a narrative. I, I, I read it originally in the Foreign Policy article. The Qataris deny the version. But somebody an, an official stated that Netanyahu lobbied against the blockade on Qatar And that it was Netanyahu Who limited the extent to which They would go to punish Qatar, the UAE and whatever Whether it's true or not is irrelevant But the point here being is that From Bin Salman's perspective Qatar has benefited from normalization in the past Not normalization in the full normalization But certainly in establishing ties UAE is benefiting sweepingly from normalization In terms of its ties with Americans Biden is the one now begging for a reset Of relations and with ties so Netanyahu, you tell me, I have this Khashoggi murder lingering over me. I have the Vision 2030 that the Americans are lucky to invest. Biden keeps calling me a pariah. Do you think you can do for me what you did for the UAE and for the Qataris? Netanyahu says, let me try. Netanyahu goes to the White House. He finds a Biden administration that is still doggedly digging his heels in to the extent that even when gas prices have risen 40% between January and October in the first year of Biden's rule, Biden is still telling a town hall, there are many folks in the Middle East who want to talk to me. I don't think I'll be talking to them. You can find it's a White House extract from a town hall meeting. It's about October, November, if you're looking for the date. So the point here being is that Bin Salman is watching the Israelis and saying, you know what the deal is. I've invited the Israeli team to participate in the Dakar rally in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. You participated. I've allowed Israeli delegations to go to Medina and go to Mecca albeit without, unofficially, but we've seen the videos of them there. I'm doing my bit to show you goodwill. Show me goodwill. Bring me the White House and bring me Congress. Biden goes in July, but he's forced to. Bin Salman doesn't think it's an Israeli victory. So Biden goes, but Biden does the one thing Bin Salman asked him not to do. Talk about Khashoggi. Biden says in Jeddah, I brought up the issue of Khashoggi and Biden says, I let him know who I thought. Was responsible for it, and Bin Salman scrambles to release a, 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 an extract in which he says. And then I said to him, "You didn't do anything about Sherin Abu Akla, the Al Jazeera journalist killed by the Israelis." In other words, and clashes. So Bin Salman says to Netanyahu, "Of course, this part is just scenario, but I'm trying to convey the message." He says to Netanyahu, "I've done my part. I've started to broach ties. People are talking about possible normalization. Bring me White House. Bring me Congress. And the reason Saudi has not normalized, from my opinion, from my analysis." It's because Vincent Mann believes Netanyahu has not delivered yet. When Netanyahu delivers, there might be normalization of ties. Until Netanyahu delivers or Tel Aviv government delivers, then there's no point. Why would I normalize ties with Israel when companies are not coming to my country because Biden keeps treating me like a pariah? Why would I normalize ties with Netanyahu when Biden... Even when he talks about strategic ties with me, everybody can tell from his mouth that he despises me, you know, the way, you know, whatever, shaitan despises a man who prays, you know, for example. But the idea here being that for for the normalization of ties has nothing to do with the Palestinians. It's about the door to the White House and the Congress. UAE, the reason it preserves normalization, despite the storming of Al-Aqsa, is because the UAE believes that Netanyahu has delivered 110% on ensuring that the White House and Congress don't even mention UAE in terms of its foreign policy transgressions. And UAE is expanding up. Even today in Sudan, we're, I think we're recording this in, what, what, what month are we? April. Uh, in Sudan now, General Al-Fatah Burhan and Hamiti are fighting each other. UAE is supporting Hamiti to overthrow Burhan. And the US is silent on the UAE role. So, and I think So I think normalization between Saudi and Israel is possible under bin Salman. If Netanyahu can deliver unquestionable loyalty from the White House in the same way that the UAE, in the same relationship between White House and the UAE, and in the same way the relation once was between
3: White House and Qatar. And do you think that would change with a possible Republican presidency?
2: I think that it's certainly true that bin Salman prefers a Republican president. Having said that, there is an incident that took place during Trump administration that altered the way in which I perceive bin Salman's view of the Republicans. Right which is when Saudi and Russia had the oil price war. And Trump demanded that they stop the war and that they cut production and Saudi cuts production to bring oil prices up. And Bin Salman refused and Trump actually started attacking Saudi Arabia aggressively in his statements. And the reason Bin Salman refused to cut production is because traditionally what happens is the Americans ask for it. Saudis cut. Americans go in and take the market share that's been cut, forcing Saudi to cut even more. And all societies believe that American push for shale oil was bringing the oil prices down and making oil untenable. Society believe, I'm not going to benefit you in this. And that caused friction in the relationship. And the way Trump resolved it was by essentially saying, usually US law doesn't allow this, but he found a loophole in it, in which he said, US will cut oil production. US is not allowed because antitrust laws, uh, comp- competition laws and the like. But Trump made this sort of interesting mechanism where US would bear the cuts And also the cuts of some of the other countries in exchange for an end to the price war. Trump didn't like the fact that he had to back down to the Saudis. And that's what leads me to think that while Bin Salman is true he prefers a Republican president, it's not clear if that Republican president will have the relationship with Saudi that Bin Salman requires. And the second point is, if a Republican president comes to power with a good relationship with Bin Salman, what's the point of normalizing with Netanyahu if you already have that relationship? And that's that's the second dilemma. And that's why I think that when the Israelis are now unhappy with that, Bin Salman suggests he's not normalizing anymore. I think it's less about Bin Salman having toyed with them and more that Israel just didn't deliver and it lost its chance. If it had delivered, if Biden had just kept his mouth quiet about Pariah, I do think Bin Salman might well have normalized and just imprisoned all the mashiach who would have complained. So I think normalization is unlikely, but not because Bin Salman doesn't want to or the Israelis doesn't want to or because there's no circus, but primarily because Bin Salman sees no necessity for it yet.
3: Sami, finally, it seems to me that you are concerned about Islam and, and the position of Islam and Muslims in the region. Um, what chances is there of a potential Islamic power to arise in the region, especially when our holy sites are in the hands of such repressive, un-Islamic autocrats?
2: I think that one of the things that's worth noting, there is an Arab saying, Al hal la yudum, a status quo never lasts. I think that while it does look like things are not looking very well for the Muslim Ummah, I do think a lot of that is as a result of short-termism or lack of memory on the part of the Ummah. And I think one of the greatest tragedies that happened to this Ummah was the disconnection of our memories from different areas. And I explain what I mean. First of all, it's important to remember that 1890 years ago, this region was under official colonization. The French were legally in Algeria. The British were legally in India. The Belgians were legally in the Congo. All these other, it was official colonization. If you went to school, the French flag was waving over the school because the global order was that colonization was the way it was. Even after World War II, when the French were liberated from Nazi Germany, when Algerians took to the street demanding their own independence, France celebrated in Paris and massacred 30,000 in Algeria to say that freedom belongs to us, not to you. That was 80 years ago, less than a century ago. Then we entered a period of independence movements, meaning that the official colonization could no longer be maintained. It was impossible. As a result of the actions of this ummah, the resistance and the like, France could not stay in Algeria. It became impossible physically. The British in India could not stay anymore. It was impossible physically. The point here being is there was a change that led to a betterment of a situation. We entered a period of political independent somewhat but economic dependency where economies were still dominated then we go through the period let's fast forward now 2010 we have the Arab Spring a movement that Bin Ali was toppled on the Friday in Tunisia if you asked any Tunisian on the Thursday that bin Ali would be toppled tomorrow, he'd have told you you're a madman. We were talking about a dialogue with bin Ali and a power-sharing arrangement on the Thursday, not about bin Ali running away on the Friday. Hosni Mubarak and the army panicked so much they got Mubarak to resign in order to cut their losses and then allowed free and fair elections to live to fight another day. The point here being is that official colonization... Uh, Semi-colonization, as I like to call it Then the Arab Spring If you look at it just over the past 80 years Not over the past 200-300 years There's a trajectory that suggests that we're going somewhere That suggests greater independence Even if we're not happy with the process of how it's developing The reason why I say that Is because when you look at Bin Salman's measures Or Bin Zayed's measures Or when you look at Libya or Tunisia or the like The reason there is so much more aggressive repression today than before Is because the people are banging on the door of freedom and suddenly the authoritarians are like, my goodness, shut this door, please, they're too close now. And if we don't shut it now, it's going to burst wide open. People are viewing the situation with one of despair without realizing that the reason they're being crushed is because the light can be seen at the end of the tunnel. And that's why I that when it comes to Bin Salman or the like, or when people look at the holy sites, I think we should flip the perspective in terms of how people are looking at it. When people complain that Macron is racist in France or the like, the reason Islam is such an issue in France is because there are more and more Muslims in France, French people converting to Islam. When Europe says that it has a Muslim problem, it's not Muslims coming from outside, it's Europeans becoming Muslims. When the Serbians attacked the Bosnians, the reason they hated the Bosnians so much was because they said, how can you who belong to me, in ethnicity and blood Become Muslim That's what they are concerned about In other words We are having the wrong interpretation We're looking at it As if it's a decline Without reason Everybody else is seeing it In the ascendancy And that's why I think That sometimes The reality is this Wallahu ghalibun ala amri. Allah is in charge At all times of In all affairs At no point Is he out of control The question that we all should ask ourselves is: What can we do within the powers that Allah has given us in order to help to promote, in order to help to promote Islam or promote the freedom or promote the liberation of these people? When you look at Gaza in May 2021, we saw for the first time ever Israel finally lost its monopoly on the narrative on Palestine-Israel. Some people said, "What do you mean lost the monopoly on the narrative? Have you ever seen the New York Times publish an article saying that the U.S.-Israeli relationship will never be the same?" Have you ever seen Nicholas Kristof, the journalist, write and say we need to realign our relationship with Israel now? Why? Because the Instagram of the Palestinians, everybody saw it. The old English woman sitting in Brighton or whatever, I said, Mike, is this what they do to the Palestinians? I never knew this. They're the ones going into... They're worshippers. Why are they beating up worshippers? That social media broke that. And that's why in 2021, Benny Gantz, the Israeli defense minister... During the bombardment of Gaza, he summoned the directors of Facebook, TikTok and Instagram and asked them, guys, take down the wretched Palestinian content because he knew that the shift was was taking place. And that's why now when you talk about Palestine-Israel issue, Human Rights Watch uses the word apartheid. Amnesty uses the word apartheid. Apartheid is used on the Congress floor. People think these are just small gains, but they completely transform how people talk and have discourse about the issue. And that's why I think that when people look at the Arab Spring and they say the Arab Spring failed, the reality is this. Look at the discourse now taking place in Washington between non-Muslims, which is, guys, what space are we going to leave for Islam then? Because now that we've crushed who Muslims think are the most liberal of the Muslims, we are going to be encouraging extremism. So now they are revising their relationship with Islamic parties and talking about changing the attitudes to allow more room for their participation. I'm not saying that's the solution. I'm saying look how they went from trying to destroy them to talking about how to incorporate them because they're aware and they acknowledge that Islam is still the most potent force. So the point here is this. It is abundantly clear. That Allah is preserving His religion and that it is growing day by day. When Allah says, They enter Islam in waves. In this world today, in our current, people are entering Islam in waves. And that's why I think that those who say that we're in decline or we're not, or they don't see the trajectory that it's going, there are people who cannot see Allah's favor. And that's why I think that the reality is this. It's not about asking how can I revive Islam. It's that Allah has preserved it. Give me the honor of of being the tool through which Islam is preserved and encouraged. And I will say this. Don't discredit small victories. When Kilic Darulu in, in Turkey today is saying the hijab is the head of the CHP which banned the hijab, which repressed the Muslims, which put the scholars in prison, which asked its military to do a coup on every prime minister who attempted to Islamize Turkey. When Kilic Daroglu, that same party, is now saying things that Atatürk would turn in his grave if he heard. When he says Turkish Muslim woman, I promise you, vote for me. I swear I will never ban hijab again. And the proof, I will put it in the constitution so no one can touch it. That shows how far Turkey, which we thought was a lost cause, has developed. And I think that's why sometimes, I think it's a lot about perspective. And the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ said, تفاعلوا khairan tejidu." Be optimistic about something and you will find it. Be optimistic about Allah and you will find it. The Prophet Muhammad wa said, one of the reasons that I always say, whenever students ask and they say, what is the best book to read on politics? I tell them, read the seerah not from the religious lens, but from a political lens. The Prophet only conquered Mecca and Medina before he died. Mecca and Medina and he went down as the greatest politician in history by the words of my Hart, the historian. The Prophet Muhammad did not measure success based on these things that we tend to measure success. The Prophet measured success in that the deen would never disappear again. And that's why I think that you see these things are changing now. People say, for example, there is an adhan now in Stanford Bridge. The Muslim says, yeah, what does an adhan in Stanford Bridge Bridge, benefit me? Then read the comments of non-Muslims. guys, and then in the middle of London, in Stamford Bridge, what's going on? They see what it means, even if we Muslims don't appreciate it. In France, when suddenly they're having a debate and they're saying, guys, the Muslim Paul Pogba is the French child's hero. The Muslim N'Golo Kante is the French child's hero. The Muslim Zinedine Zidane is the French child's hero. Karim Benzema is the French child's hero. Guys, if we're not careful, our French generation, will, the new generation, will forget what it means to be French and they'll be like those Africans. When they realize the impact Islam is having and the Muslim instead turns around and says, this means nothing for me. This is a lack of appreciation of how Allah makes his religion supreme. And that's why I think that the reality is this. My grandfather was a mujahid who fought against the French and he lived to see, he was in the mountains with his brothers. One brother was killed. He had aunties who had breasts chopped off and tortured. He had horseshoe marks, everything. But I remember one thing that he said after he finished. He, I said to him, he wasn't happy with the way Algeria was after independence, corruption and the like. But he said, listen, My generation was about securing liberation. Your generation is to build from there. I don't want you to go backwards and do what I did. I did my job. I did my life. And Allah will reward me based on it. Your role is to do the next stage. In other words, people always imagine that I should do something where at the end of my life, I can stand on the podium and say, I did it. Without realizing that the reason Allah made, and I'm I'm trying to find a nice way to, to put it. The reason why Allah made sacrifice something so, is because Allah says, if you're ready to give something up for me, I will give you the benefit in the hereafter and the rest of the ummah will benefit for it later on. And that's why the question is, where do you fit within this irresistible wave of history in which Islam is still continuing? And that's why I I tell you an interesting story. I was in Azerbaijan recently and um, I asked to go see the Zoroastrian temple. I was fascinated by the idea of a fire that never dies. And I couldn't understand how people for thousands of years, they worship fire. And this is no disrespect to, to, to Zoroastrianism or the like. But they said an interesting story where an American came to Azerbaijan and saw the fire and he saw people worshipping it. But his reaction was not this fire is ever burning. His reaction was there's oil under this fire. The point here being is, is how he, he viewed it, the, the yes. different perspectives. Yes. And I think with Muslims sometimes we, Ibn Khaldun said that a civilization is not destroyed when it's destroyed physically. It's destroyed when it's destroyed psychologically. Allah says وَإِن تَعُدُّ نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ لَا تُحْصُوهَا If you were to count the blessings of Allah, you'd never finish counting them. And I think the reason Allah says that in the Qur'an is so you may always remember that He's ever-present. In other words, that when you see something that looks like despair, you're able to count and say, wait a minute, Allah is here. And it's the same with politics. Because people think that this situation has always been there. But think about it, guys. Bin Ali fell 2010, that's only 10 years ago before then we had constant changes in government movements as well, the Muslim Brotherhood, whatever you might think of them, things are moving forward. The question the Muslim should ask is not why are we in such a state, but that given things are moving, how can I amplify that wave? And that's why I think that to answer, go back to your question, even though I diverge here, there, left, right, everywhere, but the point here being going back to your question in terms of what Muslims can do in terms of what's happening in Mecca, Medina, do what you can. If you can speak, Martin Luther King has a lovely saying in which he said the if you can run, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. But by God, keep moving. The point here being is, guys, an Instagram post makes a huge difference. If it didn't, Benny Gantz wouldn't have asked to take prayer. Facebook post, Twitter post, engaging with your charity, going to your mosque, on Eid, dressing up in a clothes that makes you look Muslims, going together in groups for Eid, prayer, for salat. All these things make a huge difference because you might think that it's antagonistic, but somebody looking from far says, I want to be part of this. And that's what I think. And that's why I think one of the, the, the greatest signs of this is the greatest inspirations for me in politics, Leopold Wise, who became Muhammad Asad, the book *The Road to Mecca. Alia Begovich, ethnically European. He wrote, inescapable questions, transform my perspective on diplomacy. Martin Lings, a who wrote, in my opinion, the greatest compilation of the seerah. It's what I used to go back to when I want to analyze politics and want to see what they do because he brings so many different sources. Allah has made his religion great. The <laughs> through the very people that right now, you're looking at them, they may be non-Muslim, but tomorrow they may be the ones who inspire the revolution. And that's why I personally, I'm always an optimist with this. Yes, Bin Salman is implementing de-Islamization, but I go back to the point, and I finish on this point. 90 years of secularization in Tunisia, they voted Islamist parties in free and fair elections. 90 years of secularization in Turkey, they brought Erdogan to power. Whatever problems he might have, but you cannot deny the changes that have taken place in Turkey. I remember Turkey before Erdogan, and believe me, it is so different. When a secular Turkish is saying istanbul now looks like anatolia what he means is there are too many hijabis what he means is muslim women have found a haven in istanbul or what was once called islam bull, for example these changes i don't think we should underrate them we should be part of them we should be pushing them and i think bin salman the reality is allah is ever present i don't think he'll succeed in it and i think that even if there are chains on this ummah it still breathes and i think those chains are weakening
3: Sami Hamdi, on that very positive note, jazakallah khair. Thank well, you thank very you. much for Thank you very much. Thanks channel. for having me. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website, thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair.
1: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.